Friday Lunchtime Lectures at the Open Data Institute. Today we have the great pleasure of introducing Alistair Gentry, who is the Data as Culture Embedded R&D Artist-in-Residence at the ODI. Data as Culture is the art programming um, element of the ODI's activities. We invite artists to critically engage with data and network culture and raise a lot of the questions that perhaps don't get asked so easily through industrial activities um, and that sort of find the, the cracks in the system and the funny bits and the unexpected bits. We do exhibitions, events and residencies, but what's very special about our relationship with Alistair is he's the very first artist we've had in residence who's been part of an active ODI piece of research. So the ODI is currently doing a large piece of research for government called the R&D programme, and Alistair is the embedded artist in residence on that programme. So he's raising a lot of questions within that team. Um, as an example of some of the things artists achieve for us, I've been working with the ODI for four years, and Alistair had been here for a week when he told me that the best way to communicate with colleagues is through the PET Slack channel. So immediately he dived in there, and I think that's something that Alistair is really amazing at doing is connecting with people, connecting people ideas and things. And I'm not going to say much more about his work, which go, ranges from the humorous to the dark to the absurd, but I am going to let Alistair speak for himself. So I hope you'll help me in welcoming him to the stage. Uh, hello. Uh, thank you for coming. Hello, Internet. Um, my name is uh, Alistair Gentry. Uh, I'm uh, an artist and writer. I've been doing this for about 25 years now. And I'll just explain this little image here, which is a, a, a doll version of me. Um, because I was looking at um, how a lot of uh, kind of the famous, or the most famous artists in the past, it's like you've really made it when there's a doll made of you, right? There was recently, there was a Frida Kahlo doll. And uh, if you go to uh, the museums in Amsterdam, you'll see um, dolls of people like Van Gogh. You'll see dolls of Rembrandt. There's a candle where you can set light to Rembrandt's head. Um, so I thought, you know, well, nobody's going to make a doll, of, a doll of me while I'm alive. So um, I thought I'd make one of myself while I'm alive so I can enjoy it. So, yeah, that's right. it's, like a, it's like a little kind of a, a ceramic kind of bisque doll version of myself. And also, this is a project I may come back to. I was thinking of making dolls of all of the artists I know who aren't famous. So you just have this kind of quite pathetic collection of people that... Nobody knows what they look like anyway, but there's dolls of them. Um, so yeah, I thought that was good. And also I, I, was, always, I was kind of mindful of a great story about um, uh, the playwright, Henry Gibson, who uh, he was sick and tired of constantly being uh, nominated for awards and never winning them. So in the end, he just went out and bought a set of medals for himself and used to walk around Oslo wearing the medals that he'd bought for himself. So uh, yeah, that's one of my pieces of advice to artists and to everyone really is, uh, <laughs> Award yourself, you know. Um, don't wait for other people to give you awards. Award yourself. Um, okay, so yeah, my work, it, it kind of, it covers lots of different media and I've done lots of different things. Um, uh, but there's things that have gone through my work recently. Um, the, 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 all of my work has these things in common, really. It's kind of the lecture, which I'm doing now, and the performance lecture. And for those who don't know, a performance lecture is... A kind of a lecture in character and it's not necessarily factual either so um, you can do a lecture that is about something that doesn't exist you can do a lecture in the character of somebody who doesn't exist or somebody who's in the past you can create a lecture in which um, the audience has a horrifying experience as a result of having that lecture for example you know rather than the usual kind of didactic educational um, lecture format. Um, don't worry, this one's not going to be horrifying, I hope. Um, another thing that I'm really interested in, particularly with regard to technology, is ritual and irrationality. Like in the modern developed world, there's a real temptation to think, oh, we're not irrational, you know, we're not superstitious, you know, but we all are. No matter what our culture, no matter where in the developed world or the undeveloped world we live, we are all prey to the same ritual and irrationality. And this can come through, you know, just as an example, shouting at your computer, uh, wanting to, you know, punch your computer's screen in when it's crashed for the third time. You know, the, it's futile to get angry at a laptop. Uh, but we do, we anthropomorphise, we have a kind of animistic view of computers as well. You know, they're stupid, they don't have any consciousness, and yet we treat them as if they 
have maliciously frozen at the moment when we need to send that particularly important email. Um, and this is something that, and, and again, you know, supposedly superstitious people, they're rational as well. You know, whatever their culture, whatever part of history they come from or came from, they were rational as well. They sort of knew that um, the trees weren't really literally conspiring against them, and yet they still did rituals about ensuring that the trees were fruitful. Um, institutions and authority. Um, I'm quite naturally or inherently sceptical and subversive of authority. Um, I was quite a bad student at school. Uh, I was very challenging of teachers. Um, I, I'm not proud of it now, but I made a few teachers cry. Um, um, so, um, but I'm interested in the idea of um, institutions and authority, and I've worked in museums and in art galleries, which are a lot of their prestige and mystique and power is about... Um, authority as well, even though art is generally thought of as being like quite a wild and woolly thing. There's a lot of authority invested in art and the artist and the mystique of the artist as well. So I like to explore that and undermine that. Um, I also like um, exploring and playing with uh, kind of ritual dress, uh, like the modern form of ritual dress, which is things like, um, like hive vis jackets you know I'm really fascinated by the way that high vis jackets now they make you actually disappear because you're it means that you're a part a type of worker who is doing a certain type of thing in a public place so if you put a high vis jacket and a cap on you can go and do anything anywhere pretty much without being challenged uh, I like the idea of things like ID cards and things I've done things where you just like print out an ID card because people look at the fact that you have ID they don't look at your ID you know, it's, it's very rare for people to actually scrutinise whether you're... And I deliberately write nonsense things on them, so to kind of... Uh, it's almost like catch me, you know? Uh, and also the, the thing at the bottom, it's kind of satire and comedy. There's a lot of humour that goes through my work. Um, even when I'm catching people out with my work, it's always about... Um, if I've caught them out, I always then kind of turn it inside out, like origami, I guess. It's like to show them how they were caught out and to help them maybe not be so caught out by these things in future. So this is one of the things that in particular relates to the kind of trust issues that uh, the, the team I'm part of at ODI is looking at, you know, why we trust, who we trust, how and in what ways that trust can be misplaced. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about a few other projects that relate to this subject. This is a show called Magical Realism, which I did uh, in various formats for quite a few years, yeah, four years. Um, so this was a touring show, it was about 90 minutes long. It went out to all kinds of places, to art galleries, but it also went to university lecture rooms. I did it in a Roman villa on the Isle of Wight on Halloween. You know, it went out to all kinds of strange places because this was um, about a period of very interesting to me, period of our history. Uh, it's kind of loosely based on John Dee, who some of you may have heard of. He was the um, court wizard basically of Elizabeth I but he was at the point in the Renaissance where scientists there were, well there wasn't a word for a scientist at that point but he was on the cusp of being he had one foot in the super in the world of kind of superstition and magic and one foot in the modern world of what we now call science um, he was a kind of a superstar in his time he did, he did lecture tours talking about mathematics which again advanced mathematics at that time was the cutting edge you know things like really looking into what algebra could do and equations and optics and how these things related to the real world. Um, he got into trouble at university for creating a, a flying mechanical beetle that scared people so much that, um, that they, you know, they, he got accused of witchcraft. But again, it was science. Uh, he was also very into, yeah, optics and lenses and all of these kind of things. Uh, but at the same time, he uh, sat and did seances and uh, communicated with the spirit world, what he called the angelic world. He, um, and he worked through most of his life with a convicted fraudster called um, Edward Kelly, who was also a government agent. Um, and he... Um, one of the, I won't talk too much about the story behind it, but one of the, the greatest things that ever came through in these seances was the angels via Edward Kelly, who was the medium. The angels said, don't trust Edward Kelly through Edward Kelly. Um, 
So, and that, that, to me, that kind of encapsulates the kind of things I'm interested in looking at in my work is, is like, and all of those kind of logical paradoxes as well is like, it's like even a stop clock tells the right time twice a day, you know, like companies or entities that lie to us all the time, sometimes they almost sort of tell the, their lies are so grandiose, they sort of almost loop around to become the truth again. Um, so yeah, this, this was a show that lasted about 90 minutes live. Um, it included uh, reenactments of the seances, the angelic communications. Uh, it was means kind of telling part of the story that I've just told you there. There was a lot of interaction with it. Um, and it was also to kind of really draw those very close parallels with then and now. You know, there was a lot of hysteria at the time in, uh, about Catholic conspirators, you know, as something we're coming up to November the 5th, you know, where the Catholic conspirators very got very close to actually blowing up Parliament and killing the king, which was their aim. Um, so there were real extremists at the time, but there was also a lot of paranoia about who's a Catholic, who's a plotter, you know, all of this kind of stuff, which obviously finds real parallels nowadays with hysteria about kind of Islamic extremism and the fact that, you know, they genuinely are Islamic terrorists, but also there are thousands or millions of perfectly law-abiding, ordinary people who just happen to be Muslims, but they get swept up in this narrative too. Um, yeah, and it had live video that went throughout, so this was quite a complicated weaving of... Um, kind of, I think, hundreds of hours of found footage. So it was different every time. There's video going on behind me. Um, and it was all sort of done. And this is another thing of mine is, is kind of, I make costumes and things as well. I learn by making things as well. So the rough, you, uh, and I talked about this in the show actually, there's hundreds of meters of um, fabric in one of those roughs. And it, just knowing that and having actually worked on one, it makes you realize you look at art history in a whole different way, just from that one little piece of detail. Just you look at those paintings and the social status of the people in them, and you realise why that was a status symbol. Because they're really hard to keep clean, they're really hard to make, there's hundreds of hours, and I'll come back to this idea later, there's hundreds of hours of somebody else's labour in that rough. In this case, it was my labour. But in the historical period in which people were wearing them, there was hundreds of hours of manufacturing time in them, hundreds of hours of other people's cleaning and looking after them um, for this status symbol of this white starched ruff. So I'm very interested in how these details that we often don't pay attention to can say a huge amount about the society and culture in which they exist. Um, that will do. This is a show I did like really recently at Sight Gallery in um, Sheffield. Um, which relates again to kind of divination and technology and um, yeah obviously this as some of you will see this is modelled on the uh, old uh, kind of seaside fortune telling booths um, but it was kind of much again a bit of a kind of sinister environment where I was um, using like old analogue technology as a divination tool and also the Argos catalogue which you can see me sitting here. Um, but again, this is an example of how you can, you can wrap ritual and kind of mysticism around anything because I was using uh, the, the Argos catalogue almost like the, the I Ching. You know, it's like the person would give me certain information and this is work I've done before in other contexts as well of kind of interviewing people, doing the kind of, the kind of stage magician kind of cold reading of people saying, okay, yeah, you've got a sister, haven't you? Yeah, she's, she's not been well recently, you know. Her name begins with R. Rachel? Yeah, Rachel, that's right. Yeah, that's the name that was coming to me. So these are, these are all techniques that you can use, and I was using these here to kind of uh, interrogate people without them knowing it. And then you go to the Argos catalogue, open it randomly, and there's always something that pertains to their life in it, no matter what page. You know, if, you, if you've opened... If you've, if you've kind of done the work with them, even for a few minutes, you open the book and you show them the picture and you don't even have to say anything to them. You say, OK, the book is showing you this, and they say... Yeah, kettles, kettles. Yeah, that's really meaningful. You know, it's just, you know, exercise equipment. Yeah, that's just, I, I, should, I should go back to the gym. I know I should, I know I should. Um, so yeah, this was, a, and this was a whole little ritual that I created where um, I would talk about also the, the, the things that were stopping them from achieving what the book had shown to them. And um, yeah, there was a shredder there where you destroy physically the idea. Uh, and then these little things next to me, um, 
there were there were like little kind of black nuggets that that I would actually eat, you know, which is again is like a call back to sort of these kind of shamanic ideas where that there are people in the community that kind of process the bad stuff, you know, and um, not to get too grandiose, but I mean that's what the artists I like do as well. They're processing the stuff that other people don't have time or energy to do in our society. That's why artists are important. One of the reasons why artists are important. Um, so this project, yes, this again is a project that I've worked on for a very long time called the Portland Office for Imaginary History. Um, the Isle of Portland is in Dorset. Um, it, half of London, uh, nearly half of London is built from Portland stone. Uh, the British Museum, Buckingham Palace, all the symbols and buildings of authority in Britain, or in, in yeah, also in Britain, but particularly in London, Whitehall, so named for the Portland stone, <coughs> is built from the hollowing out of the Isle of Portland which has also been an admiralty base, a secret place for many years and still is. They do uh, research on magnetic shielding of um, warships there, among other things um, now. So it's got this kind of um, identity of being like this hollowed out kind of quarry place and how there's a lot of secrecy around it. Um, and it has a very kind of specific community which holds on very strongly to their community identity. So this is a project I was lucky enough to actually be embraced by that community to go and do this work. Uh, the Portland Office for Imaginary History was a satirical tourist information office. Uh, I actually had an office um, that was done up like an information centre, but all of the information in it was false. Um, it was kind of exploring the idea of um, tourism being always about stories, really. So like my, the example I gave was um, you go to most, some, there are some self-evidently spectacular tourist sites like the Grand Canyon or um, I think of another example. Um, well, no, I think of a, of a counter-example. Like the Grand Canyon is self-evidently magnificent. You go to even the Acropolis in Greece, half of it's laying on the floor. You know, you need to, it's kind of beautiful what is there, you know, and there's kind of a certain sort of romantic beauty in the fact that it is all falling down and destroyed. Um, but you need to use a lot of imagination. You can go even further and you go to kind of archaeological sites and they say, this is an important Neolithic site, you know, this is where people were first doing whatever they were first doing. But what's actually there is a hole in the ground, you know, it's like a... a, a you know, it's grass, you know, with a square hole in it, you know, and you, you need to use a lot of imagination there and somebody could say that to you and unless you're an expert in, um, you know, prehistory, you wouldn't necessarily know whether they were telling you the truth. So this is something that I wanted to highlight, the fact that um, also that uh, lots of different types of people are erased from history or not, not even erased because they're never there. Um, so actually sometimes the only way that you can actually find those people in history is to make them up. You know, because women don't get, you know, women are not recorded, people of colour are not recorded, LGBT people are not recorded, poor people are not recorded, illiterate people are not, you know, just everyone, basically, virtually everyone. Um, so, and you can't even find them because the records are just not there in the first place. They just did not live lives that led, that were deemed worthy of having traces um, in most cases. So this was my attempt to kind of emphasise that and to put them back even if I had to do that by making them up. So, um, and you can see what I was talking about here. This, is, this was an entire kind of logoed, branded environment. Um, I had uniform, I had the high vis on. Uh, there was like uh, fact sheets that were all branded and um, so it looked like a real place. Uh, there were postcards, there were souvenirs that you could buy of things that had never happened. Um, and it was a very successful project, successful enough that I was asked to go back and do it again this year. Um, so yeah, this, this is an important thing. And again, I sort of doing these tours, I was kind of not making any great pretense that I was not myself, but I was not myself. Um, and I was saying things with a straight face to people that were just literally not true. But part of what I do is about kind of, it's what they call in filmmaking, suturing. It's like being sewn in. It's like where you, you get into that particular little world and you play by the rules of that world for the time that you're in it. Um, and in that sense, I think uh, people often question whether performance art is really art or whether contemporary art in general is really art. I think that's what interesting artists do. Uh, even a painter on a wall, they're bringing you into another world. They're bringing you into a world that they've created. 
Uh, the only difference is that they're doing it from a particular place and time. Somebody like me is bringing you into another world now, you know, in this place and this time. And you have to be in this place and this time to experience it. But otherwise, it's a little, little different. Um, oh, that slide's in the wrong order. Um, I'll have to come back and find her later. So, okay, well, I'll move on to what I'm interested in doing here. Um, one of my starting points coming here was the... Um, this, Wizard of Oz, Wiz, I can't even say it, Wizard of Oz AI. Um, this is something that was coined by somebody else. I'm afraid I can't find who actually coined it, but it, it's a thing that's been mentioned. And what this is, is the technological industry and the data industry's tendency to um, upplay the technological sophistication of what they do. Um, the tech world is like all other industrial revolutions, propped up by a huge um, workforce of unseen human beings. Um, some of them have actually gone further, which is what particularly attracted my attention. Uh, they're actually, there are now companies running things or startups running things that have a front end that looks like an AI or looks like it's some kind of doing some complex tech stuff. But in the background, all it's really doing is doing good old-fashioned human work. It's somebody sitting there with a search engine. It's somebody sitting there typing stuff out. Um, it's kind of like a, uh, a UI on top of something like Mechanical Turk, which is Amazon's service where you can basically pay someone virtually nothing to carry out small, menial online or tech tasks, you know, to sort through a list, you know, to fill out a spreadsheet. Um, um, but yeah, the, but now there's a whole other layer which has gone on top of that where they're using those kind of services of those kind of usual kind of disempowered kind of gig economy people but pretending it's a machine, uh, which really fascinates me, you know. Uh, and this also goes to trust as well because people are increasingly trusting machines more than a human being. So if you think you're interacting with a machine or an AI or a, or a UI, uh, user interface, um, you will say and do things that you wouldn't say if you thought there was a human being looking at it directly. So this actually is kind of a breach of trust, really, to run things that look like they're technological but are actually just a person in disguise. Um, but this can also be a good thing, you know, it's a, using the Wizard of Oz uh, analogy. Actually, the wizard does, he's a fraud, but he does, in fact, give the kind of characters what they want in the end. Uh, and what they want is within them anyway. Um, uh, yeah, it's an interesting aside as well. In the film, this is little. If you read, if you read the books, the Emerald City is also false. Uh, they actually made a real Emerald City for the famous film. In the book, the wizard has convinced everybody in the city to wear emerald glasses at all times, so everything looks green, and they're never to take them off. Like that's one of his rules. You put the emerald glasses on, you never take them off outside your own home. So again, I think this is a great kind of uh, metaphor for some of the technological developments that we've had. You know, you wear your emerald uh, glasses and the emerald city becomes the emerald city and not just the city. Um, so that's one of the things that interests me as well. And also that relates to my other work as well, just the idea that you can be telling lies to people, but there are kind of, there's some cases where that can still lead to a good conclusion. Um, tech bros. Um, this is, uh, for those who don't know, this is uh, Elon Musk um, smoking weed very ostentatiously uh, in public. Um, yeah, this is interesting to me as well. And this, again, this relates to the Portland office and uh, like other things in my work. Um, some of us have more reason to trust technology and data infrastructure than others. Um, and some of us are impacted more than others by the kind of overriding kind of moral framework of the tech and the data industries, uh, which, as we know, is largely dominated by the very educated white male, often American, um, of a particular age, coming from a very particular kind of libertarian political viewpoint. Um, and they dominate disproportionately. And that even without the meaning to, that ideology propagates down through a lot of the decisions they make and the technologies that we interact with. Uh, just Facebook, for example, just the idea that... Um, well, I think uh, kind of tech executives like um, 
Zuckerberg have even said, you know, a, a Google executive said this as well. He said, um, talking about Google Maps, well, I've got nothing to hide, you know, well, you know, what do I care if anybody knows where I live, you know. Um, there are lots of people in the world that it's very, very dangerous for them to know where you live. Um, if you're lucky enough to live in Silicon Valley and be a middle-aged white man who's very rich, you have far less to fear than um, a middle-aged educated black man who lives down the road and doesn't work in the tech industry. You know, he can be shot dead just for walking in the wrong place. That's unlikely to happen to you. That's an extreme example, but, you know, as we'll, we'll see a bit later, um, there's a lot of extreme examples in the world. Um, Okay, the Palantir. Um, yeah, this relates to, to the things I'm looking at as well. The Palantir is, um, well, Palantir is the name of uh, Peter Thiel, another arch libertarian's um, company which does uh, security tech and uh, kind of security AI. Um, and this is something I'm, I'm writing about at the moment as well for my second ODI blog about the way that the, uh, the tech and the data and the kind of disruptive industries love dystopian imagery. I'm not even sure if they really love it or if they just uncritically take it on board. Um, so yeah, uh, Peter Thiel's company is Palantir and the, the two of the big projects uh, that they're running are called um, Gotham and Metropolis, which for those who don't know are the home cities of Batman and uh, Superman respectively, or as I'm pointing out in my what I'm writing, the home cities of the Joker and Lex Luthor. Um, so, yeah, and the other thing about the Palantir as well, in terms of, like, thinking, wow, that's a great name for my tech company, if you actually, again, if you actually read the text or if you even just watch the film, the Palantir as a communication medium is, firstly, not neutral. Um, the Palantir as a community, which is this crystal ball, which uh, uh, Saruman is, is kind of consulting here, for those who don't know, it's not a neutral medium, and it's not a neutral medium because it's controlled by somebody else. It's con controlled by the villain... Sauron, who not only controls it, but corrupts and destroys everybody who communicates with it. Uh, and it's it, because it's an asymmetrical medium. It's basically a medium for the big bad to destroy the world. So, you know, when you think about it that way, it's a very odd metaphor, you know, uh, unless it's a deliberately sinister one, which could be the case. And talking of deliberately sinister, here's the uh, wonderful viral um, photo of... Um, a member of the Saudi royal family, I believe, and Donald Trump, um, apparently um, looking at, uh, into the eye of the evil Sauron. Um, so, um, or being looked at, rather, by the, the eye of Sauron. Um, so, yeah, this is the thing that I'm interested in, too, the way that um, we're often, as users as well, but particularly the, the providers of the technology that enshrouds us now, are incredibly uncritical about even their own metaphors. You know, they're, they're just, uh, somebody should, uh, you know, um, send them on a, like, high school uh, semantics course or something, you know. It's just, even that level of understanding would help, I think. Uh, so, in my research, my initial plan um, in talking about these kind of things was to kind of make something which sort of used this sort of mentality and sort of exposed it a little bit. And what I was originally planning to do was to use some of the techniques I already have, plus the kind of technological kind of AI kind of back-end things, to uh, extract a lot of information from people, just to kind of interact with them for maybe five minutes. And from that, um, kind of leverage everything they said or everything they did to kind of hoover up all of this kind of information that's available from them that you can get about any of us from a small amount of information. When it's done um, maliciously, it's called doxing, which I'm sure some of you know. It's like dropping documents. Um, it's a thing that's been done, again, has been done disproportionately to women who have loud voices online. It's disproportionately done to minorities. Uh, the Gamergate thing, uh, it was initially, it's just women doing incredibly in innocuous things like saying, uh, yeah, hang on, why isn't there a female character in this video game? You can choose the male character's shoes, but you can't choose to be a woman or you can't choose to be a non-gendered person. Um, and that led to some of those women being sent death threats, rape threats, uh, packages being sent to their door, 
swatting, which again is the next level of doxing, which is when you call in a police report about that person because you've researched where they live. And again, this can be lethal. Um, but in my research, I found very quickly that I could do that. It doesn't need to be an artistic project. I could do it now. This piece of software called Maltego, which again is another example, as far as I can tell, it means mist or fog in Welsh. Um, but Maltego, for those who don't know, is a piece of software which you can download as a free version. It just runs in Unix. Is it Unix or Linux? I think it's Linux. Um, you could just basically get a free trial version of it and you can go all the way up to one that will do like 200,000 or 400,000 um, what they call transforms, which is a search through the available information. And what Motega does is um, it correlates people's identities or data in general, but it can be used to correlate people's identities from very small points of data. So if you know someone's email address and um, like one other piece of information about them, this will correlate it. And as soon as it's correlated, it, it goes out like a like a virus, basically, and it goes down and it finds everything about that person, everything they're related to. This diagram, I believe, is showing everybody who's on the same email server as one particular target. And it can go out and it can find every piece. It can go, it has, apparently has APIs for things like Facebook, hello, Cambridge Analytica, uh, because it can go into Facebook and go into the friend graphs. And it, it can, basically, it's like, it completely, like, maps out that person's identity. It can even, it ha I think it has actually been used recently to investigate Russian hacking because what it can do is that it can re-correlate or re-identify people who have been operating under different online identities and kind of merge them back together. So basically there's a, <laughs> there's like a plugin <laughs> that does this. Uh, you could, and there's a library that you can just download from and it will just do this kind of stuff automatically. So, um, yeah, again, oh, yeah, that's there. Um, just because I was thinking, yeah, it's just they can't help being sinister. They just can't, even with the names, they can't help being sinister. Mist, fog, you know. They don't call it, you know, sunshine browser or, uh, you know what I mean? They have to go sinister with it. Um, and it is, it seems pretty sinister. And again, this is a thing, it's very hard to trust these kind of players when they seem to so enjoy being sinister, you know. It's like, it's not cool to just, uh, you know, it's, it's cool in a kind of intellectual sense, but it's not, like, cool full stop to be able to, like, suck up every bit of information about somebody instantly. That's terrifying. Um, and it's being done all the time. I went to a conference a few weeks ago which was um, aimed at um, kind of people who work in finance industries, um, uh, kind of uh, insurance industries. And again, there was a demonstration there where some a representative from an insurance company was happily saying, uh, demoing, uh, like when you go for an insurance quote, how they suck up all the information about deceased relatives of theirs, everybody who's lived there, former partners. It all just comes out in their interface the moment you like put your address in. Um, and he didn't seem to think that was a problem. There were people in the audience who thought that was a problem, but he didn't think that was a problem. Or, and he didn't understand why anyone would be worried about that. But again, he was a white middle-aged man. He wasn't, for example, uh, a, 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 a woman fleeing an abusive relationship with her two children, you know? Um, they just don't think of these things because they're not diverse. They don't have people in the room saying, hang on, that scares me, you know? I'm a gay man, that scares me, you know? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a... You know, I'm an Asian mother of, I'm a single Asian mother of two. That scares me, okay, you know. Um, so, again, I decided to not do that because I don't want to be the thing that I'm discussing. Um, and also because it would be too easy. It's not artistic. It's just like, it'd be like, you know, putting a frame. It'd be like, should I say, it'd be like being Banksy, you know. It'd be like, uh, it's just so obvious and, and base. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, this, this, this is uh, Manal al-Sharif. Um, so, and, and yeah, this is going on to the idea of um, uh, uh, the, uh, the downsides falling disproportionately on certain people. Um, Manal al-Sharif is a Saudi um, women's rights activist and um, who self-exiled now from Saudi Arabia. Um, she, again, her main campaign to begin with was on the subject, again, a relatively innocuous subject, you would think, of 
women being allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. Um, she wasn't, um, <laughs> she, I, I, as far as I know, she's been very careful to avoid the things that particularly female activists get con uh, accused of, you know. Her tone was very reasonable because women get their tone policed far more than men do. Um, but uh, that was not enough to stop um, massive harassment of her, you know, both by strangers, by uh, stooges, of which there are large numbers now online, paid by certain governments and activists and um, lobbyists. Um, and uh, yeah, directly by the Saudi authorities themselves. So she has, uh, in the last week, I think she was at a conference in Norway, publicly and very uh, pointedly removed herself from social networks because, um, I'll just read the quote, the same tools we joined for our liberation are being used to oppress us and undermine us and used to spread fake news and hate. Twitter is now is becoming a trap and it's being used in a very efficient way by those governments, dictatorships and tyrants to silence us. And not only that, to spread their own propaganda, their own hate speech, misinformation and disinformation. So she has decided that she needs to find other ways to carry on the activism she, she needs to do um, because um, the cost versus benefit of her being on the social networks is not there anymore. Um, and again, it's, it's not surprising that people like her feel themselves unable to trust the systems that now surround us constantly. And, um, it's not always bad, as bad as this, but it can be pretty bad. You know, just yesterday, Tanzania, um, they're rounding up gay men via their social networks, um, their gay dating apps, and that's happened here in Chechnya as well. Uh, there's various places in the world. They catch, basically, it's, again, really crude, really basic. They catch one, they go into his phone, they find everybody he's, he's communicated with, they go out and get them, and so on. It's like Matego. You start with two points, one point, very quickly, exponentially, the network expands. Pretty soon, you know, even if one in ten, if it were roughly one in ten of the population are LGBT, you can very quickly round up one in ten of the population through their uh, social networks and their, uh, their social co uh, communications. So, yeah, I'm going to have to speed up a bit. I'm talking too much. Um, so this is uh, Pipo-kun. Uh, he is the mascot of the Tokyo Police Force. Um, so this is another kind of strand that interests me, is the fact that uh, you can have authority without being sinister. Again, not that the uh, Tokyo Police Force is without its problems, uh, but generally Tokyo is one of the safest cities in the world. Um, and Japan in general has a very, very low crime rate. Um, again, you know, they have the same crimes as everybody else, but uh, generally their policing is, is pretty good. But it's interesting that their chosen interface with the world is through this character, Pipo-kun. Um, Pipo is just like, it's like a pet name for police and kun just means it's like a, a, it's a term of affection for somebody who's like your little brother. Um, so yeah, there's a thing here saying, uh, yeah, as you can read it, yeah, chil uh, uh, children, keep it safe. This is encouraging children to call the police when they see anything suspect. Um, uh, yeah, and that's the number you call in Japan to call the police, obviously. Um, and again, it's not even very specific. It's just saying if you feel worried, um, call the police. So there's other ways to do this. Um, also, I was really interested to maybe, since a lot of the tech stuff is so dystopian, to try and do something that kind of brought the idea of utopia back again, kind of there's not much hope in the kind of the tech and the data industry. It's, it's really easy to get downhearted and you're quite right to but also you know you need hope you need optimism as well so and we used to be optimistic about technology you know we used to be even the tech industry itself used to be about you know well you know the founding of the world wide web and the internet you know this was going to bring us all together you know this was going to open things up this was going to blow apart um, existing power structures it kind of did but it sort of put them back together again it's kind of like the t1000 in the uh, you know, in that film, you know, it's like it gets blasted into pieces and they kind of slither back together, you know. Um, but again, we can't ignore the fact that uh, actually things are pretty bad. So I think we have a responsibility, in fact, to try and be hopeful and try and do positive, constructive things with the knowledge we have. Yeah, because we've got this kind of 
nonsense. I'll try not to swear because I'm online. Um, but yeah, this is the, uh, the notorious Westboro um, Baptist Church who protest basically everything. Um, and uh, yeah, as we all know, there's a huge amount of div division uh, in the world right now. Um, so again, as an artist, I don't want to contribute to that. You know, I don't want to be the thing I'm criticising. Um, yeah, finally, yeah, just this is one of my favourite quotes, yeah, from Oscar Wilde. Um, and also this is kind of like um, stylistic goals as well. I mean, just look at this picture of Oscar Wilde. It's just, it's just you know, like the velvet coat and everything and the cape. It's just, just cravat, you know, it's just like amazing. Um, but the real point of this slide is uh, all art is quite useless. And um, again, uh, my role here as an artist is... Um, to be constructive and to research, but not to be uh, kind of pragmatically useful in the same way that some of the other people here kind of are. You know, it's, it's I'm here to create and to make something and to come to a conclusion, but also um, art is useless. But that's, that, that wasn't a criticism by Wilde as well. What he was saying there, because the full quote is, all art is quite useless, as a beautiful flower is useless. It doesn't mean... It has no right to exist, and beauty and flowers are really important in the world, you know. Um, and they, um, they are useful in their own way. Um, beauty is useful. Uh, positivity is useful. Making people think is useful. Um, so what that means really is art is not pragmatic, and it doesn't have to be, but art can still be positive, and art can still change the world. Um, an artist can change the world, and they have done, and we will continue to. And as I always say, and usually finish my talks, whatever the subject, by saying this, artists have been around for at least 30,000 years. Other occupations have come and gone. Um, we'll still be here in 30,000 years too. Um, so, yes, I hope that was interesting, and if you have any questions, please ask me. Right, thank you. So... I'm here to hold the mic, but not to speak into it. If anyone has any questions, please let me know. If anyone in the room needs time to think, I don't know if we've had any questions online, Hannah. Not yet. Yeah. Please wait for the mic because we're live streaming. Hey, Alistair. Um, have you done any research into why people do trust machines more than they trust humans? Uh, yeah, I'm looking at that at the moment. Um, there's definitely, there's papers on it. It's, it's definitely, it's, it's not just a, a kind of an idle observation. It's definitely a, a trend that's been um, noticed. Uh, this is something that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not finished with this by any means at the moment, but it's, well, part of it is, um, it's, to do with, it's to do with being human. It's to do with the cues that you get from another human being. Um, like when I'm talking to you, it's like, you, you know, I'm talking to you now, you're, you're nodding, you know, it's like, because you, you understand, you know, you're looking at me when I talk to you. Um, so there's, there's cues that you get um, when you're dealing with an institutional person, particularly, again, like if you go to, uh, go to the job centre, you know, to, to pick a relatively kind of stressful negative example, um, it's harder for you to say to another human being, um, I can't make ends meet, you know, like I'm not earning enough money, my kids are hungry, you know. Uh, to type that online is easier. I mean, and, and again, I think this goes to the, like the, the harassment and bullying as well. As we all know, that's easier online too, for the same reason, because it dehumanises, it distances, it keeps you away from that person kind of doing that micro-expression like when you've just insulted them. You know, it's like even if you just slightly insulted someone, somebody, even if you politely pass over it, you can you see someone reacting that way and you say, you think to yourself, I shouldn't have said that. No, actually, that was rude. Um, you know, should I say something about that? You know, did I offend her? Is she going to, you know, will she forget it? You know what I mean? You know, all of these things as a normal human being you go through, you don't go through that if you've got even the slightest veneer. Um, and also, we, we, again, it's because of the cultural thing. We think of machines as emotionless. Uh, data seems motion, uh, emotionless to us. Uh, a data processing unit doesn't get upset when it kind of reads 100 reports of men in Tanzania being abducted, you know. Um, we do. Um, so, yeah, I, in some ways it's sort of a no-brainer that it's, it's easier to deal with a machine. Um, but, um, 
Yeah, I'm going to go further into that because that's the thing that I want to play with. It's just like how machine does an interface have to be before it stops? No, the other way around. How machine, yeah, how machine does an interface have to be before it stops being human? Even if there's a human behind it, like how much of the human do you have to hide? How much of the human do you have to show? Or how much of the human do you have to simulate in order for an interface to work? You know, maybe there's a, maybe we'll come in the future to a kind of sweet spot between the human and that kind of machine interface where it's, they're like a, yeah. Well, I guess it's the sci-fi dream, isn't it? It's like the, the robot servant that kind of, uh, or the robot helper that kind of is human enough to know what you're talking about but not human enough to get upset by the things it has to do to help you, you know? Um, yeah, sorry. Um, thank you for the presentation. It's really great. Oh, you're welcome. Um, just building on the, the question and your response to it and this, um, this point about um, the, the context in which we start to process the fact that something is a machine. Mm. So a lot of that, I suspect, is down to just culturally how we've um, engaged with technology. Mm. And I was reading something, um, rather watching something, a, a talk that Gillian Tett did about silos and their danger... Um, being not that we have silos, that in and of itself is not a problem. Mm. That's a, res a result of the fact that human beings need to classify yeah. things to process information, but that we stop seeing them. Mm. Um, and then that's when they become dangerous, mm. when um, we no longer recognize that we're seeing the world through a certain lens. Yeah. And I'm just really curious about any projects you've done or your explorations with regards to helping people contextualize data mm. and be aware that there is a context, that it's not mm. objective, that it's not, yeah. Emotionless. There's something behind that. Uh, well, yeah, just like everything I've ever done. It's like every project is about that in one way or another. You know, it's, it's why I'm fascinated by lies and deceit and, and, um, and, and the lies and the, 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 we tell to ourselves as well, you know, the delusions we have that, um, you know, it's like, well, you know, I'm much more objective than her, you know. <laughs> just obviously, you know, it's like, you know, she's being really subjective and, she'd be, you know, or, you know, he's being really biased. You know, it's like we're all biased. Um, and as you say, it's about wrecking, it's not about pretending we're not. It's about, uh, like the Portland office was, you know, again, that, that whole project is about encouraging people to look at everything around, not just the, the thing I'm doing, but to look at maps critically, you know, like what is not on the map, like how's, why is the map laid out in that way, you know, why is that data presented to you in a particular way, you know, why is this in the story and this not in the story, you know. Um, and, yeah, again, I, I try to emphasise in everything that everything is ideological. There's no such thing. Um, I worked at the University of Edinburgh in the um, genomics department, mainly with social scientists. Um, and I, it's a fantastic story. Yeah, sorry, Ian. But, uh, yeah, Ian Wilmer, um, the uh, geneticist, fam most fam famous for Dolly the Sheep, he was doing a panel talk with, uh, I think, the Bishop of Glasgow, I think it was. I'm afraid I can't remember his name. But uh, Ian made this kind of blithe comment of just like, you know, because the bishop was there saying, because um, somebody had questioned him about the morality of, you know, having hundreds of defective creatures before you got to the successful one, you know. And he said, well, you know, the, well, we're scientists, didn't, get, you know, and the Bible says, you know, we have dominion over everything, don't they? Isn't that right, Richard, or whatever the name of the bishop was? And the bishop just like gave him this withering look and said, you know, well, nobody believes the Bible is literally real, Ian, you know. It, 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 it was just uh, just like a really kind of telling moment of kind of how glib, so even quite well-intentioned people can be about their blinkers, you know, about the rails they're on. It's just like, you know, thinking, you know, that it's just that denial that we go into to not deal with things that are too morally dif difficult. And, yeah, I mean, just to be clear, like the real point of that is not to have a guy in Wilma, but to, to point out that, you can, it's very common in kind of things that are supposedly kind of like hard sciences for people to delude themselves that there's no ideology there. You know, when you work in the social sciences or you're an artist, you know that everything is subjective. You know, it's like drilled into you that everything's subjective, right? But I think in the so-called hard sciences, things like data and, and kind of uh, like genetics and these kind of things, I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking that those things are not ideological as well. And they, they so are, you know, they just are. Because we're human. Because we're all human. Um, yeah, sorry. I mean, that was a bit of a rambling answer to the question, but I hope that was in some way illuminating. Do we have another question on the floor? 
Sorry, it's me again. I'm going to regret asking this, but what's it been like as an artist to be embedded in an organisation that sort of carries out more conventional research? It's been amazing because, you know, for one thing, as you've seen, it looked like my ideas have really, really changed, you know, as a result of being here and uh, kind of talking to people and seeing what goes on here and seeing... And things like um, the kind of... I don't know, I don't know what the, the, the most sensitive way to describe it is, the kind of the ethos generally, you know, it's kind of like not a political place, you know, with a capital P, but the kind of the idea of the, the kind of the general thrust of everything that goes on here is about a particular kind of approach to data and, and you know, just the, the thing that's been kind of, I think finally now drummed into me just, to pick one example is not, not talking about like my data or our data, just talking about more the idea that data is something that kind of accretes around us and that is, that is around us and to do with us, um, but is not necessarily ours or a possessive thing, you know, which opens up all kinds of sort of political and um, you don't have to be political. It's not a political thing in itself. But for me, it's opened up all kinds of kind of philosophical things about, you know, how much of this data and technology do we actually have ownership of in the same way that we own like our hand or our, you know, or even our shoes, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it, it definitely has had a real influence on the project and I'm sure it will continue to do so as well. So, um, and just the, the, the diversity of the things that people work on here as well and the fact that, I don't know, it jibes with kind of, it, it, with how I work anyways, the idea that there's nothing that's, so unimportant that you can't make a change to it you know you can do things better you can do things more efficiently you can do things right you know in the sense of doing the least harm to the most number of people you know or actively doing good you know by changing small things and by actually examining the detail of what you do you know instead of just blithely going forward okay that works let's move on you know just to actually interrogate these things and interrogate the fact that, you know, all of us are enmeshed in this data that's all around us. And, and the idea of data as infrastructure as well and, like, how it really is. You know, data is not just a, a thing that we can take or leave now, you know, in the developed world anyway and increasingly in the whole world. You know, it's infrastructure, you know. And, um, and again, like infrastructure, there's, there's politics and morals and social things that all go around it and who gets access to it and who doesn't and who's invisible and who's more visible than they should be or want to be. So it's huge, you know, and I love the fact that it's huge. You know, if it wasn't huge, it'd be really dull to be here. So I'm, I'm glad that it's a huge subject. Alistair, that's a really wonderful point to end. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, audience, for coming and audience online for being online. Um, just remains to say, you can keep in touch with Alistair's progress through his residency, through his blogs that will be on the ODI.org, our website, and at Within about six months, we hope to be announcing the project that comes out of the residency, and that will be something be lovely to welcome people to come and participate with when it happens. But thank you, Alistair. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you online. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.